The holidays are almost here, and that means you're about to get a heck of a lot busier. And the data reflects what you know to be true. Prior to COVID, Yelp observed a 17% increase in diners seated from October to December over the prior quarter. And that was before everyone was trapped in their houses for over a year. Capitalize on that increased demand this holiday season with the all-new Yelp Guest Manager. Yelp Guest Manager allows you to manage your guest reservations and your waitlist all in one place. Better yet, it's fee-free until February of 2022 with an annual agreement. Visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast to learn more today. Now here we go. If you want to just be an owner and just want to pop in from time to time and get the corner booth and have VIP treatment and then just enjoy from that more detached perspective, awesome. But then let's identify who that person is that we're going to invest in that's going to be there every day doing those ugly things in the dish pit, being that second dishwasher in the night because somebody called out and now it's Friday night and they're back there with their sleeves rolled up and they're taking dishes out of racks and drying them. And like, if that's not you, then who is that? Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. We've spent the last 15 months together questioning every assumption about this industry. What I've learned from more than 100 interviews is that a 6% net profit doesn't need to be the standard. I've collected the best practices from the best operators in the world and created a guide detailing the five steps they've all taken to achieve a 15% net profit in their restaurants. You can download that guide for free by visiting restaurantprofitguide.com. Again, that's restaurantprofitguide.com. To call Paul Pruitt a restaurant consultant fails to describe who he is and his contributions to our industry. Paul is a hospitality futurist who, in the 10 years I've known him, has predicted every major evolution that our industry has faced. Today, Paul and I chat about the present and the future of our industry and how holistic hospitality could be the solution to all that ails us. So my background is... I would say fairly typical, kind of worked my way up through the ranks as a lowly dishwasher in high school to cook, to thinking I was too cool to be in the back and needed to spend more time engaging with people out front. And so transition in front of house and from there just kind of, yeah, worked my way up really through the ranks, through a few at the time and some that turned out to be pretty prominent restaurant groups, which I always feel if there's any sort of kismet or serendipity in my past, I just happen to often be right place, right time, catch a few rising stars, some by designs, others by sheer luck. And so, yeah, just kind of worked my way up into all front of house, back of house positions, to management, to corporate level. I was fortunate enough to, you know, was single, good chunk of my life. So I would jump on a plane and move anywhere, fly anywhere, which is in this industry is pretty advantageous. So college in Mississippi to restaurant group in Atlanta to Philly, DC, New York, Jose Andres, Steven Starr, BLT, restaurant group, all in a corporate level and brought me out to LA, met the chef Roy Choi, had been thinking about new school, helped him launch A-Frame and he and I are now great friends and partners and a few other projects. But yeah, that was about 10 years ago, moved to LA, started new school and haven't looked back. 
let's talk about new school. So first, tell me what it is. And then second, I want you to tell me what it is, because I would assume that in consulting, it's not about knowing more than the people that you're helping. It's about being able to see more than they're able to see on their own. So talk to me about what new school is, and then talk to me about the lens through which you're able to look at someone else's business and help. Well, first of all, I'm going to steal everything you just said, and that's going to be my <laughs> uh, I'm going to definitely co-sign on that entire statement. No, I think that's a great way of putting it. You're right. I'd like to think that one of the things that's helped me throughout my career and has been a big part of new school success is I would put my resume up against most anybody in this industry. And yet I approach every day, every project. And I mean this sincerely, like I haven't done anything like I need to just shut up and listen and learn. And so I think we're voracious and great note takers. We ask a lot of questions. We're the I would say the opposite of ready, fire, aim, which I think a lot of consultants are. I think a lot of consultants think, aside from them maybe overvaluing their own worth, I think they feel like by virtue of the fact that they're a consultant, they were hired, they need to change things and fix things. And sometimes I think, especially with a name like New School, people are shocked when you know our clients, when we say, look, I got to be honest, the old way of doing things is actually better. The conventional way is the better way. Or... I wouldn't do anything. We just had a client, a big hotel group that we've done three other hotel projects for, just flew us up to Napa. They bought this big hotel property. They wanted to do this very ambitious food and beverage program. We spent about three days eating all around Napa, looking around, talking to people, spending time with their hotel. And we're like, look, keep your money. It would behoove me to tell you this is, you're on to something, pay us ton of money to bring this vision to life. But I think the best thing you could do is keep the money in the bank, invest it more into your hotel and maybe some of the smaller amenities, but building this robust sort of outdoor beer guard, like I don't see it. And I think people are pleasantly surprised. And I think too many consultants, to your point, they don't listen, they don't observe, they just dive straight in and feel like they have to produce things. And sometimes it's not in the best interest of the client. Well, and so what is best case scenario when you're doing your job at the highest levels? What is it that you bring to the table that a consultant should bring to the table? Yeah. And let me just caveat by saying, and I fully appreciate why I use the term, excuse me, it's in our LLC's name. It's certainly the term that most people refer to us by, but I just despise the word consultant. And yet I oh, it's gross. consider myself, right. yeah. I would call myself a consultant, but I have to just put that out there that I wish there were, and we've workshopped all sorts of sexier, cooler names that nobody has any idea what they mean. And they're like, oh, you're a consultant. I'm like, yeah, we're just <laughs> So we've just said, why, why over, why make that more of a, of a hurdle for people? So yeah, I mean, I think we do our job well when, again, we do a lot of exploration. And I think people... To be honest, I would say there's 50% of our clients that find that frustrating. They just want us to jump in and just start doing stuff and fixing things and adding things. And I'm like, listen, we want things that last. We want things that are going to be best in class. And we want things that are going to allow you to have success in the near and long-term future. And like, you can't do that. Just, yeah, some things do happen organically and along the way we will shoot from the hip from time to time, but we're not certainly going to begin the endeavor that way. And some clients get it and, and love that, love us for it. And others just like, yeah, yeah, you guys are pros, just do what you do. So I think first it's, again, really get to know the terroir, the people, because I don't have to tell you, but there are very few things that I find are truly empirical and 
evergreen within our industry. It's just constantly evolving. What applies? We're working with a hotel group here in Santa Monica. I live in Santa Monica. Our office is in Echo Park. And they hired us specifically because we were the only ones that could explain to them the different factions within Santa Monica to cast, you know, to brush one stroke and just say, well, it's Santa Monica. It's going to work. Well, are we talking Montana? Are we talking the downtown core? Are we talking near West LA? Those are very different demographics. There are different walking, driving patterns that could go on and on. So I think really taking the time to provide that nuance and that context says everything about, and again, and what applies today, again, somebody hires us eight months and asks us for the same thing eight months from now, moreover, and asks us for the same study, we might provide a very different recommendation because as you know, trends change, economy, pandemics, and otherwise. So I think it's listening, it's asking questions, it's doing your homework, knowing the players, and then taking that And look, I'm very proud of the experience we have. First things I tell a lot of our clients as part of our orientation is like, listen, any consultant who says they can guarantee you success is lying through their teeth and you should run in the opposite direction. What a good consultant will do is greatly minimize your chance for failure. And that's what we do. I can honestly tell our clients, if you're not a wild success, it won't be because hot food was cold and cold food was hot and the servers couldn't explain the menu and drinks were taking forever to come out of the bar. The things that we can control, that I can guarantee you will be good to great. And I think there's subjectivity in what person views versus as good versus great. So I always caveat that as well. But there are just a lot of things that you can't control. And I point that out as well. And so I think setting very clear expectations about what we can deliver and just pointing out as well. I mean, we can all point to restaurants in any city that seem to defy logic and are busy for no discernible reason. And those that seem to have done everything right and they make it eight months. And that's the unfortunate thing. And again, you know this better than I do. I mean, it is a mercurial, tough industry but it's also not impossible. It's not like you can't make money. And there's, I think there's also a lot of fear mongering and misinformation that's out there. But yeah, it is hard. You can do everything right and still fail. And that's an ugly reality. But when you walk into a restaurant, so like as a restaurateur, I would argue that my locations are different than every other person's locations out there. Every restaurateur leaves their restaurant to be a snowflake, truly unique on so many levels. But I've got to assume that even if it's just in your head, that there's a checklist you work through when you walk into a new restaurant. That there are KPIs you're looking to track. There are obvious mistakes you're seeing. Did they fall into this trap? Did they not? Are there universal issues? If we were to get away from the art of the restaurant business and get into the science, are there universal mistakes that you see? Yeah, I would say a few things. Number one is, you know, what I like to call and think of holistic hospitality. I think that in the industry has definitely been a bit of a pendulum and ebbed and flowed between, is it about the creative elements or is it about the more pragmatic elements that make a good restaurant work? And no surprise, the reality is a great restaurant generally requires both. And you could say what you want even about the big box brands, you know, the corporate chains, are they going to win Michelin stars? Are they going to be an infatuation, you know, an outback, for example? No, but there is actually a certain level of creativity that went into developing those brands. My grandfather used to always say things are cliche for a reason. Well, these brands, we all know them for a reason. They tended to, they did something right along the way. And there was some element of creativity, but they were able to also balance those ambitions 
with great systems, with a smart business plan, with a great, I think, sort of structure that these things can sort of exist organically within. And I've been pretty fortunate in my career to work for some incredibly savvy businessmen and women, as well as creatives from designers to chefs, to mixologists, et cetera. And it's always perplexed me and disappointed me to see how much they've always been pitted against one another as if it's, are we going to be cool? Or are we going to make money? And I've always found that to be laughable and very short-sighted. And there's tons of examples of both chef-driven and corporate concepts that manage to do both. And so I tell our clients all the time, I'm like, listen, I've had this conversation with investors and chefs. I am a restaurant owner. I'm a consultant. And in the corporate world, I'm like, listen, a great P&L doesn't create a line at your door every day at five o'clock, but that great P&L keeps that door open. It's not one or the other. You can have a healthy business model that allows you to reward your staff and further invest in your business while at the same time creating some buzz and excitement that really is going to be what people are going to probably be talking about. And so I think trying to bring that sort of more holistic and dynamic way of thinking, because no surprise, I think a lot of the success failure rate of restaurants tends to lie in the fact that for a lot of people, it is a passion project. It looks easy. It looks fun. And we see that with a lot of our clients. They immediately want to get into mood boards and picking like handmade pottery. And I'm like, man, we'll get to all of that. But right now we're building the recipe. Like we'll put this in the oven. We'll go grocery shopping later. I promise you, don't worry. We will get to all of that stuff. But right now, what is the recipe? And I use that analogy a lot, but it's so true. It's shocking to me how many people love to go grocery shopping and love to pick out the plates that their cupcakes are going to go on, then figure out later, is it what kind of cupcake are they even making and throwing it in the oven, they've got the wrong temperature and bad ingredients, and they forgot to mix things. And suddenly at the end, no surprise, they have the most horrible cupcakes on the most beautiful plates ever. And so I think trying to bring that again, that holistic thinking and having people let's run before we can walk. And I think as a professional, that was something I had always done is sure, I wanted to do the sexy things and the fun things and playlists and uniforms and cool happy hour programs. But before we got to all of that, I was the guy who would raise my hand and say, okay, what is, have we built a critical path? Do we have a pro forma? What is this going to cost? What are we expecting? What are those KPIs? What is the ROI we're looking for? And then, you know, I was the fun sponge in many, many a room. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) what they didn't see is that, yes, once we got beyond that, then yeah, I could also sprint and get excited about the more fun elements that most people are drawn to restaurants for. Do you feel like a lot of that stems from overwhelm? It's just a lot to do it right and to do it well. There are so many moving parts. I can only speak for myself as a restaurateur, but I always tried to piecemeal it, right? I'll accomplish this and then I'll accomplish this. And is that the reason that it's really hard to take a high level holistic perspective on the whole thing? And if that is the case, how do you overcome that? Yeah. I mean, look, just with New School, we've done almost 80 projects. Prior to that, with BLT, Steven Star, Jose Andres, you know, I've probably opened another, I don't know, 20 some odd properties in different countries around the world, different staffs, different economies, you name it. It is fairly formulaic, but I think where I have to temper myself is sometimes I even get trapped in that algorithm of thinking, okay, it's another opening and here's my critical path and I have everything on a timeline and that timeline shrinks or expands for a myriad of reasons. But I do think it is fairly formulaic and algorithmic, but what I do think is smart 
is yes, there's no harm in leaning upon or reverting to the breadth and depth of experience we have. But as I tell my team all the time, we will never resort to conventional ways of thinking until we've exhausted all of the more unique and progressive ways. So we're not too proud to revert back to my earlier point to just the way everybody else does it. And let's not overthink it. But we won't ever default to that until we've exhausted the other more creative ideas. So to your point, I think we do a good job of about destigmatizing a lot of this because a lot of people too, I mean, they tend to, I'm sure you know this, and there's one of two types of clients for us. One who just think it's not that hard. What's the big deal? Let's just get going. And others who are like, I don't want to make a decision because restaurants lose a ton of money and this freaks me out and I don't know anything. And I got to be honest, probably I would say seven out of the 10 most exciting ideas that we've come across in developing a restaurant or food and beverage concept came from the naivete of the owner who didn't know any better. And they're like, I know this sounds crazy, but what if we didn't have a host stand? And what if there was just somebody outside with an iPad and they greeted you when you walked out of your car and whatever, they just start riffing. You're like, that's actually kind of cool. We could add, that's actually a great idea. And so we try to create a space where we're like, look, we got you. We've got a formula. We've done this a lot. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean there won't be any bumps along the way. It means that the chance of us failing is pretty slim. And we've got some pretty good guardrails and bumpers to help us along the way. But within that space, we want you to be you. You need to stay above the fray and in this fun, creative headspace. Let us worry about the more pedantic, pragmatic things that aren't that much fun. We'll fold you in as much as you want. But we really challenge our clients to have fun and be creative and don't worry about what you know or don't know, because that's, I think, where some of the most brilliant ideas live in that sort of, I wouldn't even call it ignorance. It's more of just a more pure childlike state of just like, you know, I went to this restaurant one time in London and it was just so cool. And they start riffing and I'm like, okay. So we sort of take that and I almost think of like, I think a great consultant has that John Nash like beautiful mind ability, like one person hears one thing and they start seeing equations in the air and they're like, okay, hold on. So let's think about what you just said. You know, it'd be rad is, okay, we sort of take that restaurant you went to in London. We're in Beverly Hills, not that different. That was in Mayfair. This is Beverly Hills. I see some parallels there, but it's still LA. So what if we just did a little twist on, and they're like, you start riffing and snowballing. That's probably the most enjoyable part about what we do. You bring up John Nash, and I think with all those equations in the air, it would be hard to calculate that if you're wearing like a rubber apron and a dish pit, which brings me to execution. I don't see a difference. What are you talking about? (laughs) I think that there are tons of successful restaurant owners out there, and then there are a ton of restaurant managers with equity that don't realize they bought themselves a job. And so when you go from that concept to execution, How do you work to make sure that the owners that you helped get to the place they're at where the restaurant is actually open are able to spend most of their time working on the business instead of in it? Because it's a lure. It's like a vacuum, man. It's always trying to suck you back in. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, again, I think this is where we kind of try to lean on the process, that critical path, those sort of very defined set of deliverables in a smart timeline again, which is not immutable and then evolves and changes and everybody goes backwards, one step back, two steps forward, et cetera. But I think having that, first of all, creates a really solid foundation. To your point, I think where a lot of owners get into trouble, again, is that they're naive, they're really optimistic. It's a passion project. They think it's not that hard. They just want to get going on the fun stuff. And next thing you know, by the time they've realized the left and the right 
brain have to cooperate here and I need to be a participant in this. It's usually you're at that point reverse engineering a lot of things that could have been dealt with early on. So I think that kind of moment where they're like thrown in and suddenly find themselves doing more than they thought they would do or doing things differently than they thought they would do. Frankly, I think we try to address those early on. And I say this to owners all the time. I'm like, listen, if this restaurant is going to win, somebody has to bleed to keep that place going and alive and work. So either you're going to bleed and you're going to be there every day, or certainly for the first three to six months, you're going to live and breathe and you will give up a good portion of your soul to make this thing work. Or you have to pay somebody pretty darn well to do that for you. But there is nothing in the middle. Somebody is going to have to bleed for this business. Every great business that I know of, somebody literally gave their blood, sweat, and tears. I've been in your establishments and I saw you working the room, talking to guests, running drinks. I mean, I'm sure that's not everything that you would envision, although you did it with grace and dignity, but you do what you have to do because when the job calls for those things, you show up and you do them whenever, however. But to your point, I think for owners, I say, listen, who's going to bleed for this project? Let's establish this early on. If it's you, then we're going to invest in you. We're going to give you the tools, resources, et cetera. If you want to just be an owner and just want to pop in from time to time and get the corner booth and have VIP treatment and then just enjoy from that more detached perspective, awesome. But then let's identify who that person is that we're going to invest in that's going to be there every day doing those ugly things in the dish pit, being that second dishwasher in the night because somebody called out and now it's Friday night and they're back there with their sleeves rolled up and they're taking dishes out of racks and drying them. And like, if that's not you, then who is that? Right. Let's talk about scaling because you don't just help people open and you don't just help people fix their day-to-day operations. One of your core focuses is on helping restaurants scale two, three, 20 locations. What are the real pitfalls in scaling? Whether it's choosing the right location, Uh, not having the right team in place. What are the common issues that you see when people try and grow? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, we do a fair amount of that as well. I've always loved this quote, a genius is a man with two great ideas. And I think a lot of people find success by happenstance or sweat, but I think it's your ability to replicate that success, whether it's expanding a same concept or you're expanding within your market or a different market, and maybe it's a slightly different concept. And this goes back to, again, those ugly, boring, unremarkable, seemingly obvious tenets, which is just, what are your systems? What are your processes? Because if you have those things in place, I can't tell you how many, I mean, we just finished working with an incredibly successful restaurant who has near unicorn success, but had just kind of lucked into it. This person had never even worked in a restaurant and has one of the per square foot, I would say top three busiest restaurants in all of Los Angeles and brought us in because he's like, listen, I'd never worked in a restaurant. I have no manuals. I have no systems. I have no nothing. I just kind of did this and it caught fire. So we had to kind of almost rebuild while the car is still on the racetrack. So that was challenging in its own way. I always say, listen, scaling a business, I actually don't think it's that hard. I do think it's fairly algorithmic, fairly process-orientated endeavor. Scaling culture is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Can I walk into your restaurant and put all of your recipes in a very detailed manuals and training systems and we can digitize, we can do all these things to encapsulate what your concept is and then move those processes and recipes and branding assets and all that to another location. 
that's not that hard. Sadly, still people struggle with that, but that's just taking the time and caring enough to do it right. Scaling the culture is, there is no real playbook for that. I mean, because we all know this, sometimes restaurants just evolve and become a thing and it has its own life force. And I always say that's probably one of my favorite things about opening a restaurant is now I used to use this analogy before I ever had kids and I always felt like a bit of a fraud using the child analogy. Never Now I actually have a kid, I can say this with a bit more authenticity, but yeah, I mean, there's so many parallels to opening a restaurant, but it is this really condensed time frame where the restaurant opens and you feel like you can't look away for a second or the child, the restaurant is going to fall down and hurt itself. And so you're there every minute observing every dish as it leaves the pass. You're checking in every guest as they're in, walking up to the host and you're doing everything. And then in a blink, you're in the way and you're like, whoa, just last week, this thing couldn't function unless I was here. Now people are like, excuse me, Paul, Paul, I got that. Paul, Paul, do you mind sitting over there? I'm going to take it. And you're like, what just happened? Now I'm in the way. And I love that sort of switch. But again, it begins to take its own life force and the staff and everything and the clientele just say so much about that culture anyways. But it is a bit amorphous. It is just this beautiful thing to behold. But how do you quantify that? How do you encapsulate that and ensure that all of that mojo and that sort of je ne sais quoi is going to be prevalent in every, especially when you go out of market, that's really gnarly. I mean, I've worked with concepts again, who expanded into like Tokyo and I've got a staff who literally doesn't speak English. You go there and the product's different. The clientele is different, you know, and it's like, how am I going to make this exactly like the one we did in Singapore, exactly like the one we did in West Hollywood. And I would feel guilty to say I even had like a solid answer beyond care, listen, take the time, I feel like bringing some of your core staff, giving them opportunities to grow their careers and move into some of these other locations, because there's just an intangible element that they bring. You or I could stand in front of employees and talk all day long about the virtues of service, whereas another server can say, look, everything Paul said is true. Yes, we do it that way. But between you and I on Friday nights when it's eight o'clock, this is how I approach it. We're still doing everything Paul said. But when you're in the weeds, like this is how we can really make this work. And they can just speak to the staff in a way you and I just really couldn't. So I find bringing some of those little seeds really to your other locations is the best way to scale that culture. We've spoken privately about backslide. The restaurant owners and operators took a giant leap forward technologically during the pandemic. And slowly but surely, I'm beginning to see it being walked back. And I'm wondering what pivots that came out of the pandemic do you think should become evolutions? And what benefits could restaurateurs see from them long term? Well, I mean, again, this is where I kind of go back to that holistic way of thinking. I think too many restaurants, because we're having these conversations with a lot of our clients now, is you look at something like technology. How does technology interface with our world in a way I don't have to tell you about the great resignation and the amount of paucity of employees out there for a myriad of reasons. So you have less employees. Most cities and states are requiring that you pay these employees more, which is overdue. But there's just a lot of conflicting forces at play. And so technology is is certainly a big part of like, okay, if I can't have as many employees and or I can't afford to have as many employees, how do I utilize technology? But again, there's what I call soft and hard technology. And this is just my own definition. Hard technology is just something that you just sort of slap on your business and it interfaces with the guests and the staff and they just kind of deal with it. I think soft technology is looking at all these different service models and technologies 
and understanding how do we integrate them into our culture in a way that feels more tactile, more personable. And in other words, I know it's not like, do we just go completely, is it all QR codes for menus or do we just go the old way because people miss the human interaction? I do think there, again, I find the best answer is a bit of both. I think that technology makes a lot of sense. I think that certainly people act like a lot of these technological innovations were born of the pandemic. No, actually, they were on a come up before the pandemic. And I think that just threw gas in the fire. And now they became much more, not only necessity, but just I think people got familiar with them and comfortable with them. We have a client that's very old school, and they're making a very large investment in the business. And when I said technology, the guy just like near freaked out. He's like, whoa, you know, like, this is too Orwellian and, you know, I don't want all just computers and tablets. And I was like, all right, well, first of all, we're only talking about lunch and brunch. We're not talking about dinner. Yes. Dinner will still be that more. So there's ways that I think you can have a little bit of both, but like everything I keep saying, it's just entirely too binary of a conversation. It's the technology or is it people? I'm like, or you could have again, more of a soft technology where you also, where I've approached some of these companies that just, a lot of them are starting to white label their services so you can add your own branding. You can make it feel like you versus just this thing that you've just now forced with the, into your operations. How has the pandemic changed the way you see the restaurant of the future inform the way you're building restaurants today? Yeah, I think it's just forced businesses to be more deliberate in how they do everything, the type of people they hire, what they pay their staff the kind of culture. I mean, there were so many things that were born of the last year and a half between BLM and the pandemic. And I think the Me Too movement and so many things that have had a very, I wouldn't even call it a trickle down. There's no question that the economy as a whole is a reflection of a lot of these sort of social justice initiatives. And I think it's forced restaurants to do things with a little more purpose. Whatever you do, you need to understand why you're doing it. What is the purpose behind it? Does it have value? Who does it have value to? How is this going to... Because I think, again, where a lot of restaurants in the past had gotten in trouble, aside from having systems and processes that were too analog, I think restaurants have never been... Well, I can't say restaurants as a whole, but too many restaurants have never been had systems processes that could flex and evolve with cultural and societal changes. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Oh, wow. Again, I just feel like society as a whole, and certainly most importantly, this as reflected within restaurants, have somehow attempted and successfully in many occasions attempted to convince people that everything is left or right. Again, I hate to over-index on this term binary, but life doesn't work that way. There are beautiful shades of gray. And I think within the gray is the nuance is a lot of the energy and personality that people love about restaurants. But I think that gray can exist and does exist well when there is a respect for the left and the right brain and the left and the right of your clientele and staff. And you could go on and on with the metaphors, but I think that is the future. I think sharing, listening, caring, but refusing to accept that you have to pick, do we want to make money or do we want to have a value-driven creative restaurant. And I hope and I'm confident that that will continue to evolve. And I think if nothing else, necessity will insist that it does so. That's Paul Pruitt. For more on New School, go to newschoolconsulting.com.
If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.